Lord God, I pray and ask that as the word is read, uh, that it would affect us and change us. Amen. So Matthew 16, 1 to 20. Sorry, I got a pop up. Um, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the laban of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the laban of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, why do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are, the son, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Let's pray. God, we ask that you may bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the catch cries that has come about uh, throughout this whole time of COVID has been this idea of being prepared that uh, governments and leaders and families and health systems need to be prepared uh, for this virus. When the virus first came over, um, we were certainly not prepared. I was not prepared. I remember in January 2020 being in a spa <laughs> overlooking this beautiful uh, mountain, uh, like a bush landscape. I was with Pastor Brendan Willis and a bunch of other guys from Southern Grace Australia. And we were talking about coronavirus. And I was in my heart, I was like, oh, I feel sorry for China. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm just assuming it's not going to come over here. Like SARS didn't really make it over here. And then two months later, you know, it made it over here uh, and suddenly our world changed. Um, we weren't really prepared. And who could be prepared uh, for this type of virus? It has changed up literally everything uh, that we can think of. But even as we learn and get better and we figure out more about the virus and how to deal with it, it's clear that we're often caught unprepared and surprised. 
were often on, on the back foot, whether rightly or wrongly, depending on how you see it, for the attack that this virus seems to launch at us. Um, and even when the government puts a plan into effect, uh, they are still relying on us as citizens <laughs> to be prepared to, to listen and obey and put it into practice, uh, which obviously isn't a given, as we've seen. And now we live in this extremely turbulent situation. How do we prepare for the future? Uh, how do we make plans for our lives? Um, how do we you know, know what we're going to do? How do we know what to expect? How do we know if we will be okay? No matter how effective our government is or our scientists are, we can never fully be prepared for this virus or for the facts of life. And they are certainly never fully in control. So what hope do we really have? You know, what kind of hope can we have for ourselves and for our lives and our families and our careers and our future? What confidence can we have moving forward? Well, as we come to this text, we're going to see within it some promises from the promised one, Jesus Christ, that can give us unshakable confidence for our lives. We're going to see in this text some promises that can give us unshakable confidence as we look ahead to the future. See, friends, if the purpose of your life and my life is safety, security, travel, leisure, family, or fun, COVID is an extreme risk. And realistically, we should have very little hope for our future if that is the main purpose of our lives. All it takes is a lambda variant or a gamma or a, you know, epsilon or a kappa and everything changes again. Um, and we don't have any confidence going forward. But if we have a deeper purpose, a broader purpose to our lives, a broader mission than just our own personal concerns and joys and pleasures, if we're bigger than something than our personal pursuits, and if we trust in someone bigger than our governments and our scientists and our community, then we truly can progress with unshakable confidence. Two years ago, September 8 in 2019, 28 of us gathered in a hall in Tara Anglican Girls School, Junior School Hall, uh, the week before we launched as a church. And, you know, 28 of us gathered, we did a, a kids work program and we had some adults in the room and it was a very empty room. Uh, and it was a beautiful moment um, as we gathered for the first time as a sent church, um, as I preached for the first time as an ordained pastor. And on that day, September 8, 2019, I preached this text, Matthew chapter 16, and those famous words from Jesus, I will build my church. We stand here two years on. And I have the same message that I want to preach for us again today. I want to preach on this promise to give us unshakable confidence. I said two years ago, because Jesus will build his church, we can labor with unshakable confidence. Because Jesus builds his church, we can labor with unshakable confidence. I said that two years ago, and that's what I want to say again. If we purpose our lives around God's purposes and we build our lives around what God calls us to do, then 
it doesn't matter ultimately the circumstances, the governments, the diseases, the vaccines. It doesn't matter because the one who we are following promises us these incredible things to give us unshakable confidence for the future. So we're going to see a couple of things in this passage. We're going to zoom out a little bit and and get a bit of context. And we're going to see the disciples and the Pharisees and the crowds getting it wrong. We're going to see Peter getting it right. But we're going to focus our attention on the end. And we're going to see Jesus getting it done. You see Jesus getting it done. And that's where our confidence will lie. But in order to kind of orient us and lead us toward those crucial words in verse 18, let's look at point number one, getting it wrong and getting it right, getting it wrong, getting it right. Uh, I'm not going to pay a whole bunch of attention to verses 1 through 12, uh, though they are important verses as much we could learn, uh, but we can't zoom in there. But to set the scene, uh, Jesus has been with the disciples in the Gentile territory, uh, and then they, they come back and they come back into the Jewish area. The Pharisees meet them and suddenly we're in a controversy again. Uh, they want to ask for a sign, even though they've seen all these incredible signs. And so Jesus says, no, nah, no sign, just the sign of Jonah, which was a cryptic way of basically saying the only sign you're going to get is after it's all done and I'm dead, I've resurrected. I've been in the grave three days like Jonah was in the belly for three days and I'm going to come back. Then he gets the boys, they get in the boat and then they travel off to the next location. While they're in the boat, Jesus warns them. He says, look, the Pharisees have got it wrong. Be careful of their leaven. Uh, that is the, the yeast. Be careful of their teaching. It's like yeast that spreads and, and infects everything because their foundation is wrong. Which I, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible is when the disciples hear that. And just like me, they're like, oh, no, we forgot the bread. Oh, we didn't bring any bread. Oh, my goodness. We're going to be so hungry, which is just perfect because not only are they with the one, you know, who's trying to teach them and protect them from the Pharisees. They miss that point. They're with the one who has just fed upwards of, you know, 20, 30,000 people with miraculous feeding and already they're forgotten. Um, So that would be totally me. I'd be like, oh my goodness, where's the bread? And in that kind of confusing explanation, Jesus, you know, gives them two things. He, he, he says, have you already forgotten? Like I fed the, 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 the crowds, like we, we did that. And then he goes on to say, but I wasn't talking about food. I was talking about the leaven of the teaching. Beware of that. And then the disciples go, oh, yeah, right. Okay. And verse 12 kind of shows, all right, they got it. So, so that's the context. Then they move on again and they go on their third retreat. So in the past couple of chapters, they've just been bouncing around, trying to get away from the crowds. They come back, they get away. And now for the third time, they go away again. They head up far north into Caesarea Philippi, a Gentile region. And here they have another time where it's just them and Jesus, um, potentially, you know, some extra teaching and things that went along there. But where we come to this moment, we have been climbing a hill um, in Matthew's gospel and or, you know, going on a race. And this is a massive turning point. This is one of the the summits and the apexes of Matthew's gospel. Everything has been building to this incredible moment where we go from getting it wrong to finally getting it right. So we're going to begin in verse 13. I'll read something. uh, I'll read, not something. I'll read the word of God. My apologies. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the crowd have got all these different ideas uh, and, and they vary. Uh, some of them, you know, that's pretty cool. Like, imagine if you were like Elijah. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, that's a cool dude to be. He does some epic things. Uh, Jeremiah, not so much. Don't, don't really want his ministry as much. Uh, more just, you know, painful weeping and crying. Uh, and then one of the other prophets or perhaps the prophet that Moses talked about. Uh, the crowd have this idea that he's someone special. Uh, but no one ventures and is bold enough to go forward to the great person that everyone was waiting for. Uh, there was this great expectation that a, a king, a savior, a, an anointed one would come and fulfill all these texts that just are laying unfulfilled, all these promises laying unfulfilled that they know are going to happen at some point, that all the nations of the earth will bow to them, that the walls will be rebuilt, that the, the glory of Israel will shine and be the highest tree, you know, the greatest, you know, sight to see. And they're like, but no one is thinking that's this, <laughs> this guy, Jesus. So verse 15, Jesus says, to them, but who do you say that I am? Not the Pharisees, not the crowds. Who do you say that I am? And then we see old Peter, faltering faith Peter, on behalf of all the disciples, gets it right. Verse 16, and notice Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I like it in the KJV where Peter says, thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. It seems like a fitting way of, you know, identifying finally the promised one. Thou art the Christ. This is an incredible moment. Um, now, we take it for granted because we've been let in on the secret the whole time. You know, from, Je from Matthew chapter 1, we've been told Jesus is the son of David. He's the, you know, he's the Emmanuel. He's the savior. He's the son of God. We know all that. But in real time in history, the people around Jesus, the disciples, didn't really know. that They might have had thoughts. They might have had ideas, but they didn't know for sure. And then in a moment of supernatural revelation that doesn't come from Peter, as we'll see, Peter points him out and says, you are the Christ in Hebrew, you are the Messiah and the son of the living God, which is what they said when after they walked on water. There's been lots of miracles. There's been lots of teaching. There's been authoritative things happen. The closest we came to this point was John the Baptist saying, um, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? But now the preparation is done. The groundwork has been cleared. Jesus has fulfilled his mission up until this point in secrecy. He's been telling people, don't be quiet. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But now in this private moment, just before the Jesus and his disciples are going to shift course from being in Galilee and head towards Jerusalem, Peter calls him out and says, you are the Messiah. You, you flick through. If you read through the Old Testament, and I, I encourage you, try and read through the Bible every year, you will see this, these anticipation, these promises that whisper and call. And then Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are that guy. 
I can't imagine what it would have been like to actually have been there in that moment, what the disciples would have been thinking. I, I wonder, as Peter said that, their hearts might have been racing. You know, when you tell kids, and if there's kids listening, you know, Christmas is coming and Santa is coming. <gasps> Suddenly they start getting really excited. Oftentimes kids squeal because they just are anticipating all the gifts. They, they can visualize Santa's sack and they can see, oh, yes, it's in there. Those toys that I want, they're in there. And they get excited. Uh, and I think that's probably what was going on in the disciples' hearts when they think, oh, my goodness. We are in the presence of the Messiah. He is here. It's Jesus, the one that's been walking on water, calming storms, feeding, you know, the multitudes, healing, making blind people see, deaf people hear, dead people alive. It's really him. It's going to be him. Christmas is coming. But is he right? Well, thankfully, for once, uh, you know, he gets a tick. Uh, Jesus says in verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, and notice again his name, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So everyone's been getting it wrong, but now Peter gets it right. Uh, and not only does he get it right, but it, he can't take any credit because it came to him through supernatural revelation. So it's all glory to God in this moment. Uh, but not only does Peter get it right, Jesus really is this person. Uh, but then P Jesus goes on to give this amazing role to Peter. Look at verses 18 to 19 and look at the name again. So it's been Simon, Simon. Now it's, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, you know, they, Peter's gone from declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, which is just an absolutely groundbreaking moment in the ministry, in the book of Matthew. And now Peter turns to Jesus and says, hey, I've got a role for you. Um, you've named me. You are the Christ. Well, now I rename you. Because uh, Simon's name, well, Peter's name was Simon. That's his Hebrew name. Uh, but then Jesus gives him a new name, Peter, which is a, a kind of a Greek nickname of, from the Greek word rock. Uh, and he's saying, you are rock. You're the rock man. Um, and obviously, these verses are highly debated um, and highly fought over. Uh, the whole Christian church in, is split over the interpretation of these verses, uh, namely relating to the role of Peter in the New Testament church. Uh, the Catholics have uh, one interpretation. They believe that when Jesus said, you are the rock, Peter, um, that Peter is the rock. And upon Peter, the church is built. And therefore, there's this line of people that are in the line of Peter that lead the church, that at the head of the church is obviously Christ, but the head of the church here on earth is Peter. Uh, but then in the Protestant Reformation, the, the reformers were like, no, it's not the Pope. He, you know, I mean, say, uh, Luther called Pope the Antichrist. So, um, that, that, you know, that was kind of how the, the reformers thought of the Pope at the time. And so uh, the, the Protestant reformers flip to the other side of the exegetical scale and they're like, it's not Peter. He's not the rock. It's the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. That's the foundation upon which the church is built. 
Then later, um, uh, uh, commentators have gone, no, 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 it's, it's not that. It's Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. And they base that argument um, off uh, later New Testament texts, which clearly say Jesus is the foundation, uh, not Peter, uh, not his confession, but Jesus himself is the foundation of the temple. So what are we, what are we to do? Um, the most contested verse in all the scripture, um, we progress with great confidence. Um, <laughs> and I actually believe that the Catholics, we actually ought to give them a tick here. Uh, they actually are right. Uh, Peter is the rock, uh, but they get it really wrong when it comes to the implications for what that means. Um, if you look at the text, it's very clear that there's no other way really of saying it other than, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. He's clearly outlining Peter and saying, you are the special one. Because of what you've just said and because of the role, the future role I'm going to give you, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. However, this doesn't mean that we, we should have a pope. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's this succession of Peters that we are to follow. All Jesus is saying is that, Peter, you're going to have a foundational role in the birth of the church, which is exactly what happens. Peter is the spokesman for the disciples. When he receives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it's Peter that gets up and preaches. When the disciples are persecuted and they answer before the Sanhedrin, it's Peter that represents the disciples. When the gospel goes out to the Gentiles for the first time in Acts chapter 10, who is it that takes the gospel and authoritatively declares your sins are forgiven and baptizes people in Jesus' name? It's Peter. It's Peter. But that doesn't mean that Peter is the head of the church because soon James becomes the head of the church and Paul becomes the leader of the mission. Uh, and so it's not that now this text means that Peter is the head. It's just saying that Peter has this foundational role. He has the keys of the kingdom because he has the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel, which opens up the, the gates of heaven to anyone who would hear the message and respond rightly. So that's my interpretation of the passage. Uh, and so we don't need um, to worry about this passage saying that, oh, my goodness, now we've got to join the Catholic Church because they've got the, the Pope. Um, if you study their history, they've had multiple Popes at one time, all, all of the Popes saying that the other one was the Antichrist. So they're in a mess as well. Um, and thankfully, the ultimate teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus is the head of the church. Um, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Peter himself in 1 Peter chapter 2 says that Jesus is the foundation and the cornerstone. So this is kind of what Peter, uh, uh, Jesus is saying to Peter. You have a foundational role in the life of the church. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, which is the message of the gospel. Later in chapter 18, he's going to give the keys of the kingdom to the disciples and ultimately, once we all become disciple makers, we all have the keys. As we all go out and go to people who are stuck in their sins, we proclaim the gospel. And if they truly repent, according to the true message of the gospel, we can declare your sins are forgiven. And in a sense, it's like opening the gates of heaven to them. So as you invite someone to Alpha, you get to wield the keys of the kingdom and bring people in, so to speak, into the kingdom of heaven. So we've seen the Pharisees get it wrong. We've seen the disciples get it wrong. We've seen the crowds get it wrong. We see Peter get it right. We see that it's a high point in the gospel. 
that Jesus isn't just this powerful figure. He is really the Messiah and he's claiming it for himself. He believes he is the son of the living God. Sometimes Muslims will tell you Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. Well, he did just right there. Just take him to Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, where he affirmed exactly what Peter said. But the focus and the power and the point of this passage is not to lend us to Peter. It's not to lead us to go, wow, Peter's amazing. Let's give him a really big hat and a staff. No, the text is leading us to Jesus, to Jesus. And that's why we go to point number three, Jesus is getting it done. Uh, And we're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on these promises, these beautiful promises that Jesus gives us as his people and as a church. So point number three, Jesus gets it done. Um, It's going to be clear when we get to next week uh, that the disciples and particularly Peter really didn't understand what he meant when he said, you are the Christ, the son of God. Uh, he, He had one image of it, which was a true image but he had the timing all wrong. Uh, He had this idea of the kingdom of God coming, a here and now kingdom, a a palace, a throne, a government, an army, a realm, a feast, but he had the order around the wrong way. He thought the kingdom was going to come here and now, uh, but in fact, we're going to see that the kingdom in its fullness will come just like that, but it will come later. So to figure out the real mission of the Messiah, we need to look at what Jesus, the Messiah, says in response to Peter's identification. So let's look again now with different eyes, taking the focus off Peter and focus back on Jesus at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In this sentence here, Jesus provides for us two powerful promises to give us unshakable confidence for the future. Jesus gives us two powerful promises to give us unshakable confidence for the future. Let's look at promise number one. First, he promises to build his church. He promises to build his church. Notice and think, look at the words again. What does Jesus say? He says, I will build my church. That should make us pause. Church, I mean, the whole gospel, everything that's been declared in this gospel up until now has been kingdom, hasn't it? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is amongst you. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom will be like this. The kingdom is like a farmer who went out and sowed the seed. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. But as soon as Jesus is announced king of the kingdom, what does he talk about? The church. So I don't want you to miss that link. The the king, the Messiah, what does he come to do? We think kingdom, epic, power, you know, palaces, hats, staffs, all these awesome things. But Jesus thinks people. Jesus thinks people. Because when Jesus says, I will build my church, that word church in the Greek is ekklesia. 
Um, that word just means people, gathering, or an assembly of people. It does not primarily mean a palace, a building, a place, or a realm. In fact, the reason why Jesus used that word most likely is it takes us back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, when God's people were liberated from Egypt and set free from their slavery, what word was used to describe them when they gathered before God to receive the law? Well, it was a Hebrew word, kahal. But in the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's translated ekklesia or church. And so Jesus is using this word, church, ecclesia, to represent the exact same reality of what God was doing in the Exodus. God has always been gathering a people. Yes, he uses lands, he uses kings, he uses thrones in the Old Testament. But ultimately, God's plan is to build a people, a gathering, uh, souls that gather around him. And I want to slow down here because I want us to see that the whole point of Jesus's mission and the very purpose of our lives is to build them around this purpose, the people that Jesus died for, the people that Jesus gives his life for to gather to himself. And Jesus expands this concept of the gathering of Israel. And now he owns it for himself. He says, my church, it's my people, my gathering, my assembly. Jeff Perswell, who you saw his face last week, says this, to be a Messiah was not just to conquer enemies. To be a Messiah was not just to rule nations. To be a Messiah was to have a people. Yes, Jesus died to save sinners. And we will see that next week. But the ultimate purpose of his suffering was not mere forgiveness of sins, but to gather a people for himself, to build a, a, a heavenly church, a cosmic gathering of people all over the world, his people, those called by his name. Jeff Percival goes on to say in his great sermon on this text, which benefited me this week, he says, building his church is what he came to do. The church is no afterthought. The church is no appendage to the purposes of God. The church is intrinsic to the purposes of God. He came to rescue a people. He suffered and died and rose again to build his assembly. So that's what this phrase means. I will build my church. This is what Jesus has come to do, not to build little brands or logos or denominations but a, a people, this universal church that begins, you know, with Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation, the gathering of all of God's people. But this is not just a statement of theological truth from Jesus to inform the disciples about his real mission. As I said, this is a promise. I will build my church. I will build my church. Who will get it done? Whose job is it? Whose responsibility is it for the global salvation of all peoples under, you know, through the gospel? It's Jesus's. It's not pastors. It's not members. It's not launch teams. It's not Peter's. It's not Paul's. It's not apostles. It's Jesus who builds his 
church. And that's a promise for you and I to hold on to. That's a promise that can give us unshakable confidence because the pressure is off us. Jeff Perswell again says, there is no pronouncement in scripture that I know of that pulses with greater resolve or greater certainty than this one. I, it's his job, will, it's a promise, build, that's the activity, my, it's possessive, church, re-render that, people, assembly, gathering, messianic community. And that's an incredible promise for us to hold on to. See, friends, two years into this little gathering that we're a part of, this local expression of the universal church that Jesus said he would build, he's done it. He's been doing it. Uh, It's such a joy to think back to almost exactly two years ago since I last preached this, to, to see how he's building not a, we don't even have a building. We're not even meeting in a building. Well, we all, oh, actually, no, we, we have a lot of buildings now. We have 30 buildings, <laughs> you know, as we all meet on Zoom. But that's not what he's come to do. He's building people. And as I look through these faces on my screen, ah, oh, it's such a joy to see the people that Jesus is building, the people that Jesus has gathered, the people that Jesus loves, the people that Jesus died for. That's what he promised to do. That's what we went out with to plant this church with this hope that he will build his church, his people. And look, there you are. (laughs) You know, since we began, we've doubled in size. Uh, We have twice as many adults as we had when we began. We also have twice as many kids, most of them through birth. Uh, And it's been a lovely and beautiful time. Uh, We've been locked down. We've been kicked out, but we're still being built. Because Jesus is the master builder and he will never give up on his people. Because he will build his church, we can labor with unshakable confidence. That's the first promise of Jesus. He's getting it done. Second promise, he promises to protect his church. Look at verse 18, the second bit. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That phrase, the gates of hell, um, which can also be translated the gates of Hades, uh, can probably incorporate two major ideas. Firstly, the the gates of Hades, which is the original translation, um, is, is a way of saying the holding place of the dead. So what Jesus is saying here to the disciples and to us is that not even death can stop this church. Uh, This church not our church, Parramatta, but the church that Jesus is building, the great assembly, will survive death. The death of Jesus did not stop the church. The death of Stephen did not stop the church advancing. The death of James, the death of Paul, the death of Peter. Death will not conquer God's purposes. Death is the great enemy. Sadly, millions are being affected by COVID. People connected to our church know family members who are sick with COVID, who have died from COVID, but not even the ravaging effects of death can stop Jesus's plan for his people. The dead and trampled bodies of persecuted Christians around the world where their blood cries out to the heavens, not even those deaths stop 
the advance of God's church. So the gates of Hades, the holding place of the dead, that can't stop the church. Jesus protects us by giving us eternal life. Secondly, the gates of hell can give you this by the first century, apparently, the, this also had this idea of evil spirits as well, that the holding place of the dead was the place of the unclean spirits as well. And so there's even a hint in this that Jesus is saying, I'm going to protect you from the evil one, from the Satan who is going to try and destroy the church. If you read Revelation, you'll see that there's this great dragon who hates Jesus Christ and hates the church. And the dragon is chasing the church down, trying to kill it, but it can never succeed. Jesus has told us the whole way through this gospel to expect opposition, chapter 10, that Satan is going to try and destroy the kingdom by sowing weeds and, and hardening hearts and tempting people away, but that the kingdom will prevail. So Jesus will protect his church. He shed his blood for people and he will not allow them to be taken by the evil one. And that should give us confidence. Our church, our little expression of the universal church, goes forward amidst a cosmic battle. So, again, another promise. Because he will build his church, because he will protect his church, we can labor with unshakable confidence. These two promises pulse with certainty and resolve for you and I. I mean, look, look at where I am preaching this. You know, if there was any a time to just be depressed about planting a church, it would be now when I don't even get to see the church uh, that I get to be the privilege of the pastor of. But this passage ought to give us steel and resolve that no matter what happens, no matter what, you know, restrictions or, or terrible circumstances happen, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So I want to end with two implications, two kind of applications for our soul as we think through this. First, we can serve Jesus as he builds this little local church with utmost confidence and expectation. We can serve with confidence and expectation that good things will happen because Jesus has said nothing can thwart his purposes. The church is indestructible, invincible, and unstoppable because it's built by an omnipotent builder. Our confidence does not, please, may it not ever rely on me, the core team, or any of the amazing members of our church. We should have no confidence in ourselves, no confidence particularly in our techno technological abilities, no confidence in even our ability to not pass out in the middle of worship leading like Henry. Uh, we don't put any confidence in ourselves. We can labor with utmost confidence because it's Jesus that builds our church. You know, friends, coronavirus, corrupt governments, communism can't take down the church. One day our doors may shut. Southern Grace Parramatta may not exist this time next year. We don't know. But the church of Jesus Christ will never be torn down. It will never retreat, and it will always advance. Therefore, we can have a poise, a ballast, a strength, a confidence, because he will do it. And he will do it, he will build it how he wants it done. If he wants to use coronavirus to build his church, 
then bring on the coronavirus in that sense. We don't, we don't like it. We don't want it. But if that's how the master builder is building his church at the time, then we submit, O oh Lord. We are just the laborers. We don't get to tell the master builder how to build his, his people, how to build his church. We just receive the orders and we get to work, not back chatting or complaining or moaning in the process. And I'm speaking to myself here because I've been complaining and moaning, not so much to God, but to the, to the world, just out there somewhere. We'll put our masks on and we'll get to work, so to speak. The second implication, so the first one is labor with unshakable confidence because Jesus is building. The second implication is this. If you align your lives with Jesus's purpose, you are a part of an <laughs> you are a part of something that can never fail. If you align yourself and give yourself to God's people, you can be assured that every one of your labors will not be in vain. You can be assured that you are not wasting your life. You know, the first week of Alpha is is there more to life than this? And if you're not building your life around God's people, then yes, there is more to life than this. You're missing out on God's great purpose for the world. It may not look very interesting or exciting or engaging all the time. It may be hard and sacrificial and costly. Oh, but friends, and you do this so well, when you give your lives to the people that Jesus shared his blood for, you are giving yourself to an invincible institution. You are serving eternal souls and you will never waste a second. There is no wasted serving. There is no wasted effort. There is no wasted giving. There is no wasted time when you are serving Christ's people because he will build his church and not even the gates of hell. Death cannot stop it. Businesses fail. Um, some of you guys have your own businesses, starting businesses. They might go up. They might go down. They might fail. Families sadly fail. If you spend your whole life and focus everything on just having a great family, you cannot guarantee that your family will not fail. Even this little local church, as I said, if you put your hope in this church, ah, it may fail. We may not exist. Who knows what God's plan is for us? And that's why Jesus said, I didn't come to build a logo, a brand, a denomination, a business, you know, a great, you know, Instagram profile. I came to build a people. I came to build a people. So when you invest, when you give up your time to text people, to call people, to reach out to people, to love people, to invite people into the kingdom, you are not wasting your time. And not only that, you do that with the authority of heaven behind you, the power of the resurrected Savior on your side, charging you and filling you and pulsing you with his resolve. He is with you when you do that. And so we should have unshakable confidence as we serve one another, knowing that our labor is not in vain. So whatever you do, whatever you're doing with your life right now, align it with God's eternal purposes. He sent his son to die to gather a people. Orient your life around those people closest to you. Orient your life around this local church. Orient your life around those in your life group. And you will have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah beside you and filling you and empowering you to do that because he has promised that he will.
So friends, because he will build his church and because he will protect his church, let's continue to labor with unshakable confidence. Don't put your confidence in the restrictions being lifted, in the vaccine working, in the non-mandatory vaccines or the policy of the government or being able to gather again or whatever it is. Put your confidence in Christ and align yourself around his purposes. And it can't be thwarted. You can't waste it and you can't fail. I want to end um, with a a long-ish quote, but a really beautiful quote from J.C. Ryle, um, who's uh, just awesome. And this, this will help us, I believe. Great is the wisdom wherewith the Lord Jesus Christ builds his church. All is done at the right time and in the right way. Each stone in its turn is put in its right place. Sometimes he chooses great stones. Sometimes he chooses small stones. Sometimes the work goes on fast and sometimes it goes on slowly. Man is frequently impatient and thinks that nothing is doing. But man's time is not God's time. A thousand years in his sight are but as a single day. The great builder makes no mistake. He knows what he is doing. He sees the end from the beginning. He works by a perfect, unalterable and certain plan. The mightiest conceptions of architects like Michelangelo and Wren are mere trifling and child's play in comparison with Christ's wise counsels respecting his church. Friends, Jesus is building us, his people. He's the master builder. He does it in his time, in his way, with his tools. And we know that because he is doing it, we can have unshakable confidence. We do not labor in vain. We get to be a part of this incredible, incredible adventure. And so friends, give your lives towards Jesus's purposes and enjoy the faith-filled, crazy, scary, sometimes boring, sometimes altogether too hard process of being a part of Jesus's church. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much that you are building the church and that it's not on my shoulders as the pastor. It's not on anyone's shoulders as members. Uh, Lord, I thank you that it's your building. Uh, You sent your son, Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He's building the temple. He chooses the right ways. He chooses the right means. He chooses the right timing. And we can rest. And then we can work out of that rest with unshakable confidence. Lord, I pray for anyone who's feeling just really tired and, and maybe just distracted by alternate pursuits and purposes in their life. Lord, would you redirect them? And would this text speak to them and help them to give their lives away to the one thing that cannot spoil or fade, the one thing that cannot be a waste of time? And Lord, would you continue to build our little expression of your universal church? Lord, would you help us? to go out with the keys of the kingdom and invite people in. Lord, I thank you for the way you're already at work. I thank you that it's not dependent upon one man, Peter, but we're a kingdom of priests, that we all have the opportunity to tell people of your son, Jesus. And so God, send us and God work through us and God build this church to grow and grow and grow so that we can have more and more people to enjoy the feast with. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.